Hello, everybody. I'm Scott Framiller on The Mental Knot. Today we have Lee Yeva. He's the CEO of Scottsdale Recovery. And uh, we've had some dialogue over the last few weeks about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of them was your story. We met, we met, um, <clears throat> we met looking at doing a work program. And you had a lot of amazing ideas. And, and we did that. We're actually doing that now. It's called, it's called the, uh, the Purpose Program. And um, yeah, lots of lots of input. And I figured we'll put you on the spot and let you tell us about your story, how you got into what you're doing. Uh, cool. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I am uh, 17 years clean and sober. I started um, my, re- my journey into recovery. I was actually a homeless alcoholic and drug addict living off the streets of Torrance, California. And I was at a position in my life to where I had no real desire to live. I'd, every night before I would fall out, I would always pray and just ask God, please just take me. I don't want to hurt anymore. And every morning when I woke up, I would be pissed off that I was still here. So the, the culmination <laughs> You know of what? Events, we smile at that and laugh, but that's yeah. not funny. <laughs> but you, at you the know. same time, one of the things that I've utilized to my benefit is to be able to take that pain and turn it into power, take that trauma and turn it into triumph. And the opportunity and the ability to laugh at it is something super empowering, and I take ownership of it. So that's really helped to kind of solidify my process of evolution to where that I can't even remember how that felt. But, you know, throughout that uh, period of my life, it was just a matter of really uh, so many deficiencies and induced trauma that was uh, something that was never remedied and I just kind of continued to gloss over it and um, do some patchwork every now and again until it became a full-blown addiction that um, led me out to the streets of Torrance, California. So it was pretty common to see me sitting outside of a liquor store. People used to flick nickels, pennies, and dimes at me. I used to go into the gas station bathrooms and take uh, baths in the in the bathroom stall with the pink powder soap. Afterwards, I get really dry and itchy going into the Wendy's or the uh, Burger King just to ask for a cup of water. And even that was something that they were very, they would hand me a cup very similar to the one that's on the table. And I would take that cup and they would watch me and then make it a point to let me know that you're not worth anything more than water, right? And like they'd don't even take sh- pop or anything No, so basically I'd go over there and they'd make sure to re, just make sure that I was fully conscious of the fact that I didn't, I wasn't entitled to anything else, right? So they would say, just water, you know what I mean? So I, I'd end up getting there and I'd just be like, I, you know, I'm, I'm so dehydrated. I don't even want anything but water. But, you know, just um, coming from that position in my life to where I am now has given me a true appreciation for what life actually represents and what it means. And the opportunity that I have to uh, represent Scottsdale Recovery as a CEO now is something that, uh, you know, I take wholeheartedly and I have a deep respect for uh, the recovery industry and I think that just having that personal experience and having gone through everything that I've gone through there was a period in my life where I would throw up my arms and just be like God why me why does this have to be my life but in reality it was a perfect opportunity and it was a training period for me to be able to do what I do present day and at that time I when I came into recovery, it was just a matter of like, why not me? I'm the perfect candidate for this. I've been through sexual abuse. I've been through homicide, suicide, um, alcoholism, drug addiction, homelessness. Uh, I've been through the whole spectrum, everything. And so when I come into the recovery industry, it was a perfect opportunity for me to utilize those things and be uh, of service to people. And so there isn't rarely anything that people can come and talk to me about that I haven't dealt with and addressed personally. And I can give them a, a blueprint on how to remedy the situation, the the trauma, whatever it yeah. might be. And so, you know, I just think that um, having looking at it from that perspective and instead of being a victim to it and becoming a victor, 
utilizing the exact same experience has been really beneficial. Well, you're in a position to make a lot of change mm -hmm. and help a lot of people too. Yeah. You know, when I first met you guys, um, that was really cool that you let me come in, kind of off the street, so to speak. You know, you didn't really <laughs> yeah. know who I was. Mm -hmm. And I was like, shit, Lee's a smart son of a bitch. Like, you were smart. Oh, I was you. like, I wow, that's that. really cool. You know what you're doing. <laughs> and I guess the point of the compliment, too, is, is saying that, wow, you know, you were once on the street. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And there's, a, there's another, um, I met a few people that were homeless for a while. And one of the things they said is they're like, man, you can't get food on the street. So your brain starts to shut down, like your brain shuts down first, right? Mm -hmm. Like almost like an anorexic, you know, mm -hmm. like an eating disorder type of deal where your frontal lobe shuts down, you lose your personality, your reasoning, all that kind of stuff. And it becomes like a normal thing for you to go to, you know, McDonald's or whatever and get mm -hmm. a, you know, a cup of water type deal and think that's normal and think mm -hmm. that's like how you're going to survive, right? But you yeah. actually need food, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, it's insane. And how, when, you, when you're on the street, you get a little bit savvy about where to go college campuses are a great place to get food <laughs> because they'll order a whole pizza and leave half of, half of it in the box and just toss it out and that's kind of the position that i was in to where i became savvy enough to recognize like where do i need to go where am i going to find my next resource not just for drugs and alcohol but also uh, sustainability as for as far as food and water so you know you become very equipped to become you're very resourceful alcoholics and drug addicts are some of the most ingenious people you'll ever meet they're the kind of people that can turn a vase into a bong, a toilet paper roll into a steamroller. And we, we, we are very unorthodox with being able to acquire whatever we're in pursuit of, right? And I've never in my entire life met a drug addict that will have methamphetamine or cocaine and say, you know what? I don't have a pipe. You know what? I'm just going to save this meth for a rainy day. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're not, that's not going to happen. Like but what does happen, they'll figure it out. And that's why I think that people in the recovery industry are really powerful resources to be able to step outside the box and become unorthodox with their approach to wellness and i think that's very is more than beneficial and i think people just don't recognize the benefit of those qualities and utilize them in the service of recovery yeah one of the things that really interests me about the recovery centers and yours specifically is that you guys aren't just like hey alcohol and drugs are bad mm -hmm. you talk about the why mm -hmm. you explore the why mm -hmm. right like why are you guys actually doing this why do you feel this way why would you be suicidal why would you take drugs why would you do alcohol and that's a powerful thing because mm -hmm. you're actually fixing the problem right mm -hmm. you're being proactive instead of reactive mm -hmm. and and that's a key element to all mental health mm -hmm. um you know uh, chris is in here now and, and you know ptsd and those types of things from from the um you know being a civil servant and things like that and and that's somewhat of an addiction too, right? Like you, 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 we talked the other day about everybody has an addiction to something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those folks get addicted to that adrenaline, you know, that constant like surprise, like here's what we're doing, you know, death mm -hmm. and destruction or whatever <clears throat> it might be. And you get addicted to that even, you know, that becomes like almost part of your awareness. And, and you know, I've never done drugs or heroin or anything like that, but you know, I've been drunk a number of times and it's, it's almost like that. Like you get drunk and you, almost, you get addicted to that feeling, like that feeling of just being disconnected and you know, mm -hmm. euphoric somewhat, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so like you were saying, you know, everybody has an addiction and you guys explore that mm -hmm. in your program also, mm -hmm. which is huge, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And then you get into relationships and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we talked about your divorce a little bit and you said, I, I, if I remember right, you said something about the folks that work there, most of them don't have a relationship after or something like that. How'd that go? Um, because of healing and all that? Oh yeah, typically, yeah, typically in the recovery industry, they encourage that you stay... Um, committed to self for at least a year. And so when I when I came into recovery, one of the first things that I did was divorce my wife, which it didn't make a lot of sense. From a logical perspective, 
um, I could have went back to California. I could have went back to my home. I could have went back to my wife. I could have went back to my occupation. And at that time, my wife was very proactive in um, reaching out to my employer and saying, hey, he's, he's off, he's getting help. And, you know, if he comes back and he finishes his program, do you think he could come back and get his job back? And they were like, you know what, we're really proud of him. You know, as long as he comes back, he commits to that program and he comes back and he's sober, we would be more than happy to give him his job back. And so I had this um, opportunity at, at the six-month time period to where I had to reevaluate. And everybody was like, man, go home. You got the cars, you got the job, you got the, I mean, the um, home, the wife. Like, why wouldn't you go home? That didn't home? mean shit, though, did it? It didn't because I knew that if I went back to California that I would relapse because she was my enabler. If I crashed the car, she'd buy another one. If I lost my job, uh, she'd get two. If I needed money, she'd give it to me. If I couldn't drive my, anymore, she would drive me everywhere. And so I knew that if I went back, I was going to get high again. And so at that time, I made the most illogical decision, which was the best decision to make. I went from a five-bedroom home in California to moving into a sober living, uh, living having a roommate, and then having to take the bus every day and going from a six-figure occupation to $7.50 an hour makes absolutely no sense at all, right? But it made sense to me, and it was something that nobody else was willing to do. And when I filed for divorce, you know, again, we spent at least 20 minutes of me just listening to her yell at me about now that you're the man I fell in love with, now that you're the person that I knew you could be, now that you've gotten um, clean and sober, now you want to divorce me? And the plain and simple uh, answer to that was, yes, it's my life. You know what people don't realize is toxic mm -hmm. takes toxic. Mm -hmm. Like it takes two to be toxic. It's mm -hmm. not just one person. You know, everybody always says that, right? And, mm -hmm. and I learned that from just working with you folks, right? Like you can't have a toxic relationship and just one person be toxic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. Yep. And like you said, you know, she might be toxic, but in a different way, of course, like enabling you. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that's a tough deal. I'm sure she was like, what the f like mm -hmm. now you're all good and now you're mm -hmm. bailing. But you know yeah. what? The greatest thing about that experience is that after I did that, I mean, obviously the family was very upset with me. And, but I actually had an experience to where um, she went off. She found another relationship. She ended up having a child. She became an accountant. She, you know, she went off and had the life that she was entitled to and deserving of that I couldn't give her um, when I was uh, living within the confines of addiction. And so me having enough courage to be able to relinquish that relationship and absolve myself from any kind of, you know, to perpetuate the harm that I was inducing in that relationship, it gave her an opportunity to have the life that she has yeah. now. You know but what I mean? Also. But I would have, ne yeah, exactly. But I would have never known that had I not taken that chance, that, that um, the belief in myself and taking a leap of faith mm -hmm. and just trusting that we both had the opportunity to embrace an, a life that we were both entitled to. And maybe, I mean, we, we were married for um, seven years, but I think that in that time, it was very toxic. We were both very young. We, we, we both took a, leap, a chance on one another and, you know, it did what it did. But at the, at the same time, it was something that when I had that opportunity and I really made a conscious decision to leave, I knew that our lives would improve. You know what I mean? And yeah. hers improves as did mine. And I don't have any regrets. Yeah. It's almost like a rocket. Like when I, you know, when people get out of a toxic relationship, it's it's like it changes, you know, you mm -hmm. can watch them change, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that, yeah, sometimes those two people just don't work together and then apart, they're not toxic anymore, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a good thing yep. and wish them the best and move mm -hmm. forward. Yep. And that's a, that's a great thing too, to be in that mindset, to be able to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. When, when, um, when you started like as an addict, what, did you start with alcohol? Was it a gateway thing? And then you got into other stuff or? Yeah. So alcohol, I mean, again, from a logical position, 
I should have known from my very first experience. The very first time I touched alcohol, I ended up in jail. And back home on the on the reservation, they don't house. There's no two. two there's not uh, two separate units for juveniles and adults. They house you in the same complex, so you're in there with adult males, right? And so I went in, and uh, I was arrested for public intoxication. Um, assaulting a police officer oh, um, and disorderly conduct. This is the first time you drank? Yes. Wow. And, and the reason being is that I never had a relationship with alcohol, and the only thing that I had seen was people drink beer. And so I watched my father and other people guzzle beer, right? And so my first experience with alcohol was actually with um, vodka, and I didn't know the distinction. I didn't know the difference between vodka and beer. So I did the exact oh, same so thing. So I just, for. yeah, so I just slammed it. And the guys that I was with were like, hey, calm down, man. You, you take it easy. It was a long night, right? Yeah. And I was just like, you know, don't worry about me. I know what the fuck I'm you know, doing, yeah. right? So I do it again. And they're just like, hey, calm down. But l- before long, I was super intoxicated. And uh, one thing led to another. And I ended up getting into an altercation with some police officers. And I went to jail. And that should have let me know, maybe this isn't the right path for you. You know, this is something that you shouldn't engage in again. But the the weird thing about it is that when I went to jail, that following Monday, I went back to school and everybody had known that I was in jail. And it was almost glorified. I came into school and everybody's like, oh, what was it like? Oh, my God, it's you like were in jail. How long were you? Yeah, basically. That's messed up. And huh? so it, it kind of redirected my attention to like, oh, so if I want respect, if I want some, you know, validation, and if I want people to celebrate me, then I got to continuously be this bad person, right? right? And so that was just the first of multiple incarcerations throughout the entire United States. But that first interaction with alcohol was one that should have let me know. But then it went from alcohol to marijuana to LSD to cocaine to methamphetamine, so on and so forth. So you've, and, d- you've done it all? Yeah, I've done pretty much everything. But, you know, with uh, exception to synthetic drugs nowadays, I haven't done any, any of those types of things. But, you know, that was more than enough to catapult me into addiction. And, you know, people always talk about loss, right? They always say, you know, I, I, I engaged in self-destructive behavior and I lost my wife, I lost my car, I lost my job. And in reality, nobody ever loses shit. You make a conscious decision to do what you do. And you're very, especially if you've been in recovery before, you're very conscious of the consequences associated with behavior. And if you continue to produce the behavior, you're going to have the nat- natural consequences associated with it. And so when I hear people say, oh, you know, I lost my car and I'm like, motherfucker, you didn't lose shit. You got to be able to take that again because it's a victim mentality to lose, right. Right? right? And that's why I'm really big on making sure there's people understand the distinction between sobriety and recovery because re- recovery, uh, uh, sobriety is abstinence based, right? Recovery is the uh, reclamation of all things lost or stolen. But in this case, it's to relinquish to relinquish the responsibility of having the relationship, the driver's license, the occupation. And for me, recovery is the opportunity for you to take all that shit back. You know what I mean? Isn't that with everything? That's like yeah, relationships and everything. Mm-hmm. Like you let go of, that's like a mental health concept, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is no victim. Mm-hmm. You can't be a victim. It's not like, oh, they did this to me or they did that to me. No, you're right. Like mm-hmm. motherfucker, that's not how it works. Like you t- start taking responsibility and make changes in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I totally agree with that, you know, other than, you know, like a kid being molested or things like that's a mm-hmm. victim. Yeah. But as an adult, there's no such thing as a fucking victim. Mm-hmm. I but totally agree with yeah, that. Yeah, but even that with uh, my sexual abuse growing up and, and it occurring from five to seven years old, there was a period to where I was very consumed by that, right? Especially when I, I reached puberty, there was a period where I was like, it, it really challenged my sexuality. Does this mean that I'm gay? Do I like boys? Am I supposed to like girls? But I didn't really know. I didn't have a concept of how to, and I couldn't reach out to anybody. It was just something that was... When, who knew about that? Nobody did. Because you didn't I, say anything. No, and I... I and, 
to this day, I still haven't communicated with family about, because it, what it'll do is it'll divide the family, and I'm not in this position. This is mine. Right. It's not for anybody to have an opinion. It's not anybody to create some dialogue around like, oh, well, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that, and have a divide in the family. It's more of a, a, response, a personal responsibility on my part to utilize that trauma and to empower people that have gone through a similar experience. And for me to be able to do that, there was a period, again, when I reached puberty, it, it brought up a lot of questions. But instead of succumbing to those questions, really, I just kind of embodied the, um, you know, I started to live within the confines of masculinity. And I come from a very male-dominant family. And so for us, it's like you don't, you don't feel, you know what I mean? If, if somebody disrespects you, they do whatever, you, there's a way to remedy it, right? And so moving forward with that, um, I didn't realize how much it really impacted me until I came into recovery. And when I came into recovery, that's when I realized like it, how significant it was. And I had masked it for so long that by the time I came into recovery and I started to really identify the traumas and do something with it, that's when it became really empowering. And I didn't really feel the need to go out and tell people, uh, specifically in my family, about what had happened. Because all it's going right. to do is regurgitate everything from the past and try and answer questions that I don't have the response to. But I do have a response now about what I'm doing with it, how I manage it, how sure. I support people utilizing that personal experience to help them evolve from the same experience. You know, one of the things, let's talk about sobriety a little bit. And, and you know, well, first, being in a room full of people that are, and we say addicts, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, I mean, there's no other way to explain it really. But, you know, I was, I was at uh, another recovery center and we were having a conversation and we were explaining this, this work program. And, and it was funny to me because it was actually funny to me because the only difference between myself and someone in that room is probably luck, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh yeah, I got a DUI or whatever. And we judge people by that or we label them by that or we say that they're an addict or whatever. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, the only reason why I didn't get a DUI is because I'm a lucky motherfucker, mm -hmm. right? Because I could have gotten hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you drink two drinks here and drive down the road, you can get a DUI. And, and it's, 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 and I shouldn't even say funny, powerful, interesting, amazing that those people are actually being honest with what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And being around folks like you and your team and your staff, and then even the folks in the recovery in that program, I'm like, wow, I need to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll tell you an interesting story about that is that I never did drugs or anything like that. I, I, not, I don't smoke marijuana or whatever, but, um, and I'm not saying it's bad or good or anything like that, but I've just never done those things. And I always thought like, oh, if I just drink alcohol, like I'm going to be cool. Well, that became like probably in your situation where it became an excess. It became an issue and it was an issue. Um, and then finally, like I stopped and I have control now. I can have one or two and I'm good or none and I'm fine. Um, but I've made a, a point not to drink. And it's powerful because you're way aware. Mm -hmm. It Like you have to actually be conscious. Mm -hmm. It's fucked up. Like I actually relived some trauma and shit from like a long time ago, some relationship stuff, some stuff from the fire department. But I was like, fuck, this sucks. Mm -hmm. Like it sucked for a little while. Now it's cool. But, but like you're saying, man, it's like a different, it's a different deal. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a totally a, different deal. Yeah, it's a level of clarity that allows you access to everything that you never wanted to deal with. You yeah. know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and when you come into recovery, it's at the forefront. It's the first thing that you start to think about because it's been masked for so long that when you finally have a level of clarity that will allow it to surface, then you have to do something. I mean, well, you don't have to. You don't have to do shit. You could leave it where it's at, but you'll repeat behavior because there mm -hmm. is no change, right? Yeah. But when you have that opportunity and all of these things start to surface, 
that's when you really recognize like, oh man, I've I've been through a lot, you know. And a lot of times people don't even recognize trauma. They can sometimes when we're doing a clinical assessment, they might be asked a question about what sort of traumas have you dealt with and whatnot, yeah. and um, they'll they'll go through and say, well, you know, I was in a car accident, but that was really traumatic, and my parents got divorced, but that wasn't really traumatic. But it is it because yeah. it changes the dynamic of who you are, and your process of evolution tends to stunt itself in those moments. And then it'll resurface when you have the level of clarity and recovery to address it. And and that's the part that I think is very opportunistic if you choose to take advantage of the situation. Mm-hmm. But if not, it'll just be one treatment episode after another after another. And it's kind of like if you went to a treatment program utilizing the clinical assessment and they, use, they um, put it up on the wall as if it was an x-ray, right? They'll be able to look at that and be like, well, see, I see that you had some sexual trauma and that you had a divorce in the family, a loss of a loved one. And I see that you never remedied it the first time in treatment. So now you're here again, mm-hmm. and we're looking at the same thing, and you still haven't resolved it. And then you end up at the third program, and they're like, Scott, you've been here three times, and right. you still haven't addressed these things, and these are the reasons why you continue to remain sick. And so for us, we, I'm very linear with my approach with people, and I don't, um, you know, I always tell people all the time that um, I, I'm in a position to be able to, expedite the process of healing and undo 30, 24, 17 years of behavior, but I only got 30, 30 days to do it. I don't got time to fuck around with your feelings. I need right. to be able to get to the point of like, do you want happiness? Do you want certainty? Do you want confidence? Let's teach you how to get there. And obviously you're, you might be 47 years old and in residential treatment, but you're going to feel some kind of way. My responsibility to you is to help you put that aside and help you absolve yourself of that responsibility of nurturing that emotional response to everything and teach you how to acquire happiness. And then you process that with your therapist and everything like that. But for me, it's very linear. And a simple question, if I was to go into a room of people and I ask them, so by coming into treatment, how long did you anticipate being sober for? And they would be like, well, forever, right? And then I'll ask them, how many times have you been in treatment before? And they'll be like, well, this is my seventh time. So what's the difference between the first and the seventh, right? And usually they'll say, well, I've been to 100 treatment programs. I've been all I've been at Betty Ford. I've been at whatever, right? And I'll tell them, but you've never been here and you've never worked with me. <laughs> so right. this is going to be a different experience, right? And so... Uh, it is different. Yeah, it is. I've been to a few now and it's different. Mm-hmm. It's different because you guys are about the why, like mm-hmm. I said. Yeah. That's powerful, man. Yep. And you... And the truth hurts. Like you're does, saying, it fucking hurts. But yeah. you got to be able to put it aside because the truth yeah. gives you accessibility to the freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's freedom from bondage by utilizing the, the things that have suppressed you for so many years. And you only access that with the truth. You know and and I mean? the, it's funny too, because when you, when you do that, when you start telling the truth, you let go of ego. Mm-hmm. And once you let go of ego, then it changes how you make your decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's some things that happened recently and, and it's all about ego, right? But you, I can identify it now. I couldn't identify it before. Mm-hmm. And also being sober, you're very conscious. You don't live in a fantasy world and you don't sugarcoat things. And I react to things much differently now. Mm-hmm. I can still get mad and like lose my temper, whatever. I'm a human being. But at the same time, I, I, I guess I heal it quicker mm-hmm. or identify it quicker, resolve it quicker. You know what I'm saying? Just mm-hmm. call, call it out. Yeah. But like, like almost like a peaceful warrior way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, I carry a flashlight, not a weapon. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, Hey, let's look at this for a second. Let's not like blow it up and go to war, but like, let's look at this, mm-hmm. you know, like a peaceful warrior approach. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between, you know, sobriety and not mm-hmm. is that peaceful approach. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? You're still going to, have a conflict, but it's going to be a peaceful conflict. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I love this quote. It says, uh, I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. 
Yeah. And it kind of goes in line with that same concept, right? Because me, I'm a very street-oriented person, right? So I, I, I was a drug dealer from 13 to 23. I never even really had a job in that entire period. And, it, you know, being street-oriented gave me a certain level of knowledge that wasn't at everybody else's disposal, right? Sure. And so it really allowed me the opportunity to have this part of me that to this day still exists, but it's at my discretion whether I u- choose to utilize it or not, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but I like that it's there because I can go someplace that other people can't. And for me, it's just a matter of, like, it's comforting to know that it's there because I know that if I need to enact it, I'm good to go, right? right, right. But if not, then I don't need to. There's no real reason. Most of the time when I get in, into any kind of discrepancies, um, you know, I'm surgical with my words. I know exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it. And so when I get into those things, I always have to ask myself, is this in line with your recovery? And this is, is this the pers- type of person that you want to be? Right. And then I'll ease back and I'll be like, nah, you know, it's, it's not worth it. But, you know, in reality, though, I go in and I utilize all of that aggression and all of that um, momentum towards the benefit of other people and to teach them how to become and utilize all of these innate qualities. Use your anger, use your, your, your uh, frustration, use your animosity and give them some momentum to something beneficial. You know what right. I mean? So right. it's like a power almost, mm-hmm. you know, it is. That's another thing too, is, is, um, just that motivation that you have with sobriety. It's a different motivation. Mm-hmm. Like you actually feel feelings <clears throat> and then, you, you know, it, it's funny too, because I, I get more energy and I get actually more happiness. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You're not like up and down. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't realize you know, I did this deal where I was like sober for a month and then I drank one night, you know, and I got, I got, I got a good buzz going. And the next day I was like, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like shit. And I didn't, um, I'm not, I'm not saying drinking's, but I'm not saying, you know, some people can totally manage it, but I just realized I was like, man, that really has a huge impact on my life. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't as happy the next day. I wasn't as like fulfilled the next day. I didn't have as much energy. Now, like I drive, I live, a, I run a place across the street from a park while I'm redoing my house or whatever. And there's like this big soccer field. I'm like, I want to buy a fucking soccer ball and kick the ball and shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's what I, that's where I'm at, you know, mm-hmm. 51 and sober versus just wanting to go home and chill and, you know, or go to the bar and socialize and have a beer or whatever, or drink mm-hmm. or whatnot. And it's a different deal, man. Yep. And it's, it's super pure. different. It's authentic. You yeah. Know what I mean, and authentic it, is the word. It's the production of the emotional response to things that, you know, people will come and they'll talk about, like, I want to be happy. And then they'll identify, like, I would like to feel joy. Yeah. And they'll say, oh, well, never mind. Those are the two, the same thing, right? They're but not. They're really not. They're not. No. And happiness is something that can be produced, right? And But mm-hmm. joy, if I was to kind of give it a distinction, I went to the park with my boys the other day, right? And I got on the swing. And I started to swing for a little bit, right? And mm-hmm. I, and then I had that sinking feeling in, in my stomach, and I was I started to get elated, and I was like, "This is joy." Yeah. Because what mind. it did is it prompted uh, a memory of you know the next thing I wanted to do was pick up a dandelion and blow it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it invoked that, that level of shit. joy, yeah. right? Because yeah. I got to feel and purity and authenticity and an yeah. emotion. And again, it can be produced, but most people don't know how to do it. And they'll, they'll utilize that as a measure of comfort to be like, oh, you know what? I want to uh-huh. go out and go dancing, but I just need a couple of drinks first you right. know, to loosen up, to feel. You don't need that. Yeah, you don't. You really don't. But you have to learn how to acquire that same position doing different things. You know what I we mean? We had a psychotherapist in here and she called me out. Um, I think it was the last <laughs> show we did. Mm-hmm. And she's like, so you go to dinner, you know, you order dinner and, you know, you order a drink. What would you order? And I was like. I don't know, captain and diet. And she's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. There's no reason to. Mm-hmm. And, the, and then once I got to that place, I'm like, wow, like I don't actually need that to have fun. I'm actually funner. 
if that's a word without it, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, shit, this is super cool. Like, and to your point too, the other day, me and my son were at the lake and they have the world's largest slide at Lake Pleasant, just mm-hmm. so everybody knows. And, uh, and we went down, I'm like, dude, let's see if we can do a double, like let's do flips and shit. And it was funner than hell, mm-hmm. you know, it was super cool. And, and all these, it was just fun, man. And, and that's the kind of stuff, you know, blowing a dandelion or swinging mm-hmm. on a swing or, you know, 51 years old. And you, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. fuck it, go have fun. And yeah. that's the key. That's like what that sobriety brings. It brings like that level of consciousness and consciousness, confidence, mm-hmm. um, where you're just like, yeah, this mm-hmm. is cool, man. Living life is badass. Yep. And it's to a degree, it almost seems a little bit unfortunate that we learned so late in life when we could have been having fun the entire time, right? Yeah, but we're going to live to be 200, yeah. so fuck it. We're only <laughs> right? like, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Robin? Robin's going to live to be 200, too. Oh, hell no. <laughs> so, so one of the things um, I want to ask you about is, is, so, I mean, like we said, we all have an addiction, right? And I think, honestly, I could say, you know, technically, I, was, I had more than 10 drinks a week. Mm-hmm. So that would, that, that, by definition, I'm an alcoholic, right? Potentially. I'm an addict, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I binge drank, mm-hmm. and it affected my relationships. It affected my life in some sort of way here and there. Um, but it was always like hidden kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like everybody around me was drinking all the time, and everybody around me be buzzed, and everybody around me, you know what I'm saying? So it was almost like normalcy, mm-hmm. kind of. Um, but when you stop, it changes the people you hang out with, some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it changes the things you do, for sure. It definitely changed my lifestyle. Um, and before, it was almost like, I couldn't, I, I mean, I could stop, and this is an excuse and a victim mentality, but I'm going to say it anyway, because this is where I was at, that, you know, people around me are like, oh, you're not going to drink? Well, I'm going to go have fun. I'm like, fuck, I want to have fun too. You know what I mean? It was almost like that, well, you know, you stopped before and you're, you, you won't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. That was almost, it was almost like they were trying to like keep you in that realm of like control and pain and mm-hmm. sickness sort of, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, but I quickly realized, you know, over the years that keeping the, the people around you are really important. Like, hey you know what, I'm not going to drink tonight. And they're like, right on, that's cool, man. Come on, let's go. It doesn't even phase them if mm-hmm. they're in a good place. You know what I'm saying? The, yeah. it, without judgment, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And that's a key thing. Mm-hmm. My, my, my question after this rant of bullshit is, you know, if you're in that space, can you ever drink again? Like, could you ever just have a drink? Or would it like, does it fuck with your head? Like, what do you think? Um, I think just based on your earlier rant, yeah, <laughs> is if you have to question it, then I'd refrain, you know what I mean? Because most people, when they're fully engaged in the behavior, they don't question it because it feels good to them. They don't see a problem with it or whatever, right? But if you're conscious enough to ask yourself that question, then you might want to refrain because natural consequences associated with behaviors, the next morning, you're going to wake up feeling like shit, right? Right. And is that how you want to feel? And because you're very conscious of that, that might cause you to refrain from the behavior because you already know what's going to happen, right? Right. But... The, the the idea about having the relationships, right, is that I, I, I chose my circle and I did it in a very significant way. But I think that having relationships with people is very, uh, you embody this persona, this identity that you create in addiction that everybody else kind of mirrors, right? And, mm-hmm. and addiction is a one size fits all. There's nothing really unique about drug addicts and alcoholics. We all function the same. We all think the same. We all do the same stuff. And so, but when you step into your your own authenticity, your own identity, you step away from the norm. And the norm is so much easier to just kind of fall into. Mm -hmm. But when you start to really step into who you are, people are going to naturally like just kind of remove themselves because then they're going to be put in a challenge, in a position of challenge to identify, well, then who am I? 
Right. And if they don't have the ability to do that, they're going to say, well, you know, just, you know, it's pretty common for people to be like, oh, Cause just because you stopped drinking, you think you're too good now or you think you're better than us. Right. But my response That's has always been, yeah. I've been sick for a long time. And whenever you start to feel better, I'm not trying to go back to where I feel sick again. You know what right. I mean? Right. So, you know, that I, I'm the oldest of um, 10 brothers and one sister right in the middle. And for me, it was just like kind of one of them things to where all of my brothers are still in active addiction. And you know, we unfortunately lost three of them to addiction. And so for me and my family, it's been one of those things to where it's just been a constant, you know, um, a challenge for me to kind of find my place because I will encourage recovery. I will talk about, and I'm, I'm living the life that I said I could. And from a distance, they're just kind of like, well, you know, that's good. It worked for you, but mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But everybody has accessibility to it. It's just a matter of the, the willingness and the desire to do something different and not fall into that level of comfort that everybody exists in because that's existing that's not living two right. different things two completely different things mm -hmm. what, what do you think about you know the folks that are in recovery you know they go through this 30-day program they graduate and they say hey do you ever see yourself drinking again the answer no would they ever drink again i mean is that even an option ever i mean I or you're done for yeah, i mean like would I, you ever yeah no for me personally no as far as like the past 17 years have been the best in my life ever and I always tell people when I facilitate groups, I'll go into that room and I'll tell them if God or, you know, creator or whatever stood before me and said, I would gladly give 17 years to everybody in this room of what you've had. If you'd sign your life away to me now, I would gladly do it because the past 17 years have been the best I've ever had. And I would love for people to have the experiences that I've had and to be able to kind of just really take advantage of the opportunity to evolve to another place of you know, existence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, when I look at that and I even consider, like if I was to ever consider um, drinking or getting high again, I, I would just be like, it, it makes no sense. I've, if I've created so, moment, so much momentum to get to where I am present day. It's illogical to go backwards, even for a drink. I think one of the biggest challenges early on um, was when I was in my second year of recovery. I was doing a lot of public speaking, so I was going all over the country and speaking about wellness and men's empowerment and all kinds of stuff. And... One night I was in a hotel room and I got paid a significant amount of money to do uh, as a keynote speaker. And so the courier came up and knocked on my door and handed me a check. And I remember I opened it and I looked at it and I was like, why well, is in my name? So I went running down to the bank and I tried to cash it. And they're like, sorry, buddy, you know, you don't got enough funds in your account. So we're going to put a hold on it and then clear the funds and that'll be deposited into your account. And they gave me like 60 bucks or some shit. <laughs> but um, I went back up to that room and there was this period where I felt like, man, that's amazing. I, I, one minute, two years ago, I was getting nickels, pennies, and dimes flicked at me. And now I have a, a check in my name for a huge amount of money. And I sat in that room, and there was a bar. And I thought, I could drink, and nobody would know. Like to celebrate. Yeah, because yeah. that's what I felt. Like, let me celebrate, right? Yeah. But instead, I just sat there, and I looked at it, and I was like, no, I can't. Because with... I don't have no business talking about men's empowerment, about alcohol and substance abuse recovery, if I'm over here living this life, right? I have absolutely no, I will, I never well, talk about anything. Yeah. yeah, I never, in that group room when I'm working with clients, I never speak on anything that I can't do, never. The only thing I never speak about is patience because I have none. I'm not gonna go in there and talk about shit that I can't do. <laughs> so when I go in there, it's, it's pure, it's authentic because I do it and that's what comes out with that passion and conviction yeah. and certainty and confidence yeah. is because I execute it on a daily basis. It's not just me talking about it. I'm being about it on a daily basis. You know what I mean? So when I go in there, 
you get all of that. You get the power, the certainty, the conviction, the purpose, the direction. And when I have that opportunity, I captivate that room for two hours straight. People forget they smoke. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for that two hour period, I'm fully committed to these authentic. people. Right. But mm-hmm. again, it's a matter of like fully recognizing that these are somebody's children. This is somebody's brother. This is somebody's sister. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's nephew. And I treat them accordingly. And that's why I always tell people all the time, you're an endangered species. There's only one like you in the entire world. There's only one Scott. And the only person putting yourself in jeopardy is you. Yeah. And so for me, it's, you know, with this uh, pretty common thing around SRC where we always say, we're going to love you until you learn to love yourself. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And, and so for and all respect of, yourself. And, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. when you, when you respect you, other people will respect you. We're, we're very committed to this idea that, you know, oh, so-and-so doesn't respect me or so-and-so doesn't love me. But when you learn to love yourself, other people will learn to love you. When mm-hmm. you respect yourself, people will learn to respect you. But you have to carry yourself with a certain air for you to be able to get the attention that you want. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, creating 100% capacity, that's why I always tell people, content and content are spelled the same for a reason. When you have content and you know who you are, you understand who you're not. And that creates content in life. You're satisfied with who you are. Right. You know what I right. mean? Right. Because, yeah, everybody's equal. It's all within us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. You know, another question about recovery so, um, and this is a little bit about me I got challenged the other day. Again, I always get challenged, right? People always call my Good. shit out and, uh, which is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, so, so one of the counselors that I went to for a long time, I use her as a reference for the show and, you know, just bounce things off her and then also, you know, keep up on my own mental health. And, and one of the things she asked me, she goes, have you stopped drinking yet? And I was like, actually I did. And she's like, well, good for you. You did that on your own. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, that was my next challenge for you because I've done all this work to get to a position to where I could and then deal with things from a sober mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, 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 you know, you have people come in off the street sometimes and the, you know, the day they come in, they stop, they stop doing whatever they're doing. How do you, how do you keep those people? Cause they have to deal with all their shit. Not only like stopping their addiction to smooth everything out and put them to sleep basically, but now they're like going to be totally awake. Their body's going to have to adjust from being an addict. And then also their brain is going to start thinking clearly and they got to deal with all their shit. How do you do that? A lot of faith, belief in people, belief in, you know, for me, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by people that consistently challenge, right? Not just me, but the industry standard, um, the clientele that we're here to serve. And, you know, it, it, it can be challenging, but at the same time, I've been there. I've been that client. <laughs> I know what it feels like to be in their situation, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll come into the room and I'll let them know, like, I love you. And it, it's great to be able to look at a grown adult male yeah. and to, to let them know, like, even with that, like the concept of masculinity and manhood, right? Um, I never really refer to myself as a man. I always say I'm an adult male in the process of evolution because it gives me an opportunity to grow consistently, sure. right? And so when I go in there and I talk about all of these things, it's a matter of just really being able to identify where are you at. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, might, you, you might be uh, irritable and frustrated and, you know, whatever it is, my responsibility to you is to meet you there and take, take I'll, shoot, I, I'll take the bullets all day, you know what I mean, because I'm equipped. Mm-hmm. Nothing that you say is going to hurt my feelings. Nothing you say, gonna say is going to attack my ego because I've been there before. And there isn't anything that you're going to tell me that I haven't heard. You know what I mean? So I'll take all of those. But after it starts to subside and given a week or two, right, and they have that level of clarity. And that's why I think that internal conflict comes from the behavior isn't conducive to how you are raised, right? And it creates an internal conflict. So after a while, 
once the substance is removed from the body, then you have that letter, level of clarity to be like, you know, hey, I apologize. I didn't mean to come, at, come at you like that. That was mm -hmm. really disrespectful, and I just wanted to apologize. That's how I can see the growth, and the momentum has started in the right direction, right? right. So that's what I'm more focused on is not you're supposed to feel some kind of way. You're supposed to be irritable. You're supposed to be angry, right, with your situation, the circumstance, because it was self-induced for the most part. My responsibility is to help you get there. So again, when I'm saying I don't, I'm not worried about how you feel, I have to apply that personally because I'm not worried about how I feel in this moment. I have a responsibility to you from, for me to get you there. And so, you know, even when people come in in the very beginning, they're very animate about staying just 30 days. Like I'm here for 30 days and I'm going to go home. But I always utilize the analogy like around baking a cake, right? You know when a cake is done and ready to come out the oven, you usually have to put a toothpick in the middle, mm -hmm. pull it out and that see if there's anything, there, right? Yeah. And if you pull it out too early, the cake will collapse because mm -hmm. it wasn't ready, right? So I kind of utilize that same analogy as it relates to recovery because people are committed to 30 days and they just want to leave because they think, okay, I learned everything I need to and you know what I mean? Not but always, yeah. That's in the infancy stages of development. You barely even got enough clarity to recognize that you were in a process of healing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the first week is you just getting physically stable. The second week is you getting some clarity around where you're at, what you're doing, and what the process entails. The third week is finally you getting to a place of like, okay, I'm learning something. And by the fourth week, you're gone. That's not even, you barely even did anything. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And so... How long do you think it takes, like a real... It takes a long time. And, and that's why I think when I came into recovery, I was mandated to sixty or uh, six months. And so I completed that program. And after that, the, my... Again, the emotional response was like, you got it, you're good, just go on and do your thing, right? But I knew I needed more. And, and the more that I continuously worked towards um, just self-discovery and the reclamation of life, the more I understood that it doesn't end at 30 days. And that's one of the things, too. Like, and I have to kind of throw this out there. I'm not a therapist. I'm not licensed. Sure. Or, you know what Me I mean? Me neither, yeah. But at the same time, I, I function that way because recovery, the industry, it has a, uh, parameters that you have to function within, Right. And so if I was a licensed therapist, I wouldn't be able to have a relationship with a client beyond that time in treatment, right? Sure. But recovery is a long-term, it's a lifelong thing. And for me, I want to be able to be ingrained in the process of evolution for every individual that I work with. Mm -hmm. So it allows me the opportunity to do that. I'm not restricted by licensure. The state doesn't have it. It doesn't have me confined within this, these parameters that I have to abide by, right? And so for me, I do a lot of uh, things just... Uh, follow-up and just celebrating victories you know not not just challenges but victories and and so it prolongs that relationship which is what I love because when you have that you might not have the people that have the knowledge and information that you need to help you sustain and maintain life you know what I mean but mm -hmm. I do and a lot of people at SRC in the, in the program and the recovery industry have that and it's just a matter of continuously giving it and making sure that you're at 100% capacity so you never go into a deficiency. Right. You know what I mean? So The, the, the tools you guys use and everything you said, that applies to trauma addiction. It applies to PTSD. Like everything you guys teach mm -hmm. applies to everything. Mm -hmm. It truly does. Yep. And it doesn't take, it's not, you know, it's not a couple months. It's not a 30-day thing. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go to counseling for, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Shit, I think I've been going to counseling like six years and, you know, um, yeah, Chris, 10. Like, that shit lasts and a that, long time, man. Yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful thing. And, and that's thing. how a lot of people even get into this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just even the, the foundation or, you mm -hmm. know, we've all had trauma. Shit, Robin's had trauma. And we, we've had conversations where everybody has that. And all these tools apply. Mm -hmm. The tools are the same tools mm -hmm. that you can apply to any 
not any situation, but most any situation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But it's a it's a long term thing, man. It's mm-hmm. it's a way of life. Mm-hmm. And um and and that was one of the things that was most surprising to me, right? As as you learn more and more about people's stories, number one, but then also like their wins. Mm-hmm. And then the wins, you're like, holy shit! Like you can do that. Like you went from the street getting water at a McDonald's to a CEO. Mm-hmm. That's bad at right. Like yeah. that's okay, how do you do better than that? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But then you continue to grow and you continue to help people. And that's where the key is, is like, that's what fills me up. I know that's what fills you up too, mm-hmm. right? Like the money's cool, but fucking who cares? Mm-hmm. It's doing something with your life where you have a meaning, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and that's what fills me up. And I know most people are that way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is, you know, we talked about, you know, fire, police, military, things like that. There's a lot of addiction in that world too mm-hmm. that they can't really identify um, and we discussed some of it, we won't get into details, but that's a powerful thing too, because you're almost like locked into this world of hiding kind mm-hmm. of deal, right? Like if you actually say and tell the truth, mm-hmm. then that could hurt you, like your career, you know, your life, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this mentality, you know, talking to people in that that world and myself even, is that, man, you know, like I, I save lives and I do all this stuff and like, how come I have to suffer now? Like, how come I have to carry this burden and this baggage and it's because people don't tell the truth Mm -hmm. and it's also because they don't have the balls to come out and say not the balls that's a poor way to say it but you know what i'm saying (laughs) they don't have the guts Mm -hmm. to come out and say you know hey man like there's a problem here like we need to identify this and make things better Mm -hmm. and those are the same tools that you're teaching every day in Mm -hmm. your facility and and i think that's one of the reasons why you know you're there for a reason right like you show up in life for a reason Mm -hmm. and you know i got i met you by chance somewhat Mm-hmm. And, uh, and man, I learned so much just, you know, with your team and having you on the show, having discussions aside from that and, um, kudos to you, you know, you're gonna meet with one of the union presidents in a, the biggest fire department in the state, you know, mm-hmm. on Thursday. And that's a cool mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. you know, with your support. This, well, but this networking thing <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, you meet people for a reason, like I said, yeah. you know, like, oh, Hey, I know this guy and I know this person, I know this person and, you know, rock and Robin knows a bunch of people too, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's that network of, of people that want to help and make change is, mm-hmm. is powerful. And like yeah. you said, you attract what you are, mm-hmm. right? Like people that aren't in that mindset fall away. Mm-hmm. And I have another, I think this is an important question for you. you. You mentioned how people can start to recover and change. And a lot of times people in their, their lives, like say you have an addict, they become sober, they want to be better. And the people in their lives hold them to the person that they were as an addict. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you remedy that? Like, what do you do? It's very hard, especially for the family, to focus on the addiction rather than the person, right? You leave a trail of wreckage behind you in uh, self-destructive behavior that impacts the family dynamic, you know? And, and the further you move away from that, you know, to give you an example, when I first came into recovery, my mother opened the door to me this much before I went into detox. And her words to me were, this is your life. I'm not going to fight for you anymore. You do with it what you want. And she closed the door, and that was it, right? And I went into detox. Fast forward in one year, I was about to get my, it was my one-year anniversary in recovery, so I called my mom, and I said, hey, mom, guess what? Today's year one. I made it. I did it. I'm sober. Today I'm going to go to an AA meeting. I'm going to get my one-year chip. And she was like, that's good. And I said, yeah, I remember I was in the program. I moved into a sober living, and I got a roommate, and I'm working, I'm, I'm working on getting a job. I'm hoping to get a job in the industry, so on and so forth. And she was like, that's good. And I was like, okay, well, I just wanted to let you know, right? 
And I hung up the phone and I felt a little bit defeated, right? But I was like, okay, well, I have to understand and appreciate what she's been through for the past 16 years, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then year two came around and we hadn't talked really in between that time. Year two came around and I did it again. I said, hey, guess what, mom? Remember that time I was telling you I was going to get a job in the industry? I actually got a job as a peer support. Now I'm a BHT. And they're talking about moving me up to a case manager. Um, I, I'm saving some money to move out of my sober living and get my own apartment. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get my driver's license back, so on and so forth. And the whole time she just kept saying, that's good. That's nice. And I was like, that's all you're going to say? She's still hanging on to the past. Yeah, but, you know, rightfully so, because I hadn't shown anything yet, right? And right. so I'm on, on, the, on the call, and I said, that's all you're going to say? And she goes, what do you want me to say? You want me to be happy that you got a job? You want me to be happy that you're living independently? You want me to celebrate you for doing what everybody else in the world is doing? You're 27 years old. You're supposed to have a house. You're supposed to have a job. Yeah. You're supposed to be taking care of yourself. I'm not going to celebrate you for doing what everybody else in the world is doing. And I said, damn, mom, bye. <laughs> yeah. But well, she was telling she was telling the truth. Yeah, and yeah. because she had equipped me, she had raised me the way that she in the best way she could. Right. And so for me, it was a matter of taking all of those things and applying them. And I was doing that 27 years later. And she knew that I was better than that. And she wasn't committed to celebrating because she knew what I was, the potential I had to possibly even be where I am today. But she wasn't going to celebrate me until I got there. Now she's like, oh, my son and my son this and my son that, you know. But now there's a level of confidence in my recovery because I exude it by my actions and my, sure. by my behavior to where there isn't a reserve. There isn't a doubt. There isn't hesitancy. There isn't anything. Those are long gone. And so now... It's just a matter of staying focused and committed to that, to where yeah. you don't have to worry about how other people receive you, how they feel, what they say, what how they judge. Mm -hmm. It's kind of irrelevant because it's still it's your life. What you yeah. do with it is up to you. And the naysayers and the doubters and all of that, they'll come around. And when they do, it's just a matter of uh, acknowledgement. Like, I get why you felt the way you did. I mean, I'm not mad at you. I, I hold no resentment, but I'm glad that you're here now. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is is not like you don't care about what other people think, but what other people think of you doesn't matter. Like, you know, calling your mom and asking her for those accolades. Of course, it's your mm -hmm. mom, right? Like yeah. every son you wants want their it. mom to yeah. be like, hey, you're a badass. Yeah, I'm a mama you know? boy, too. Like, hey, you walked. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Or, yeah, mm -hmm. you can eat with a spoon or whatever the fuck. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the funny thing is, is like now in my life, I would never call and ask anybody for that, right? Mm -hmm. I would have. Maybe even last year I would have. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what changed in my life is I don't need that from other people. You know what I'm saying? To yeah. have like my self-worth because mm -hmm. I have self-worth on my mm -hmm. own. And that's that healthy mindset, right? Yep. I, and I think that's one of the keys too to keep you out of that addiction or out of those toxic relationships and things like that. And, you know, I always say, you know, earlier I was saying how it takes two people to be toxic. Well, if, you know, you can always say, oh my God, you know, he was an addict and he was this and he was that and whatever. Well, why the fuck were you there then? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If he was such a horrible person or she was such a horrible person, then why were you there? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, everybody has a choice in life, especially mm -hmm. as an adult. So what the fuck, you know? Yep. And that's when people are like, whoa, I don't want to really deal with the truth. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Because you call them out, like you being authentic and truthful, you're not calling people out like with your words, but you are with their, with your actions, mm -hmm. you know, and you have to be authentic to be able to be around you because yep. you see through their bullshit in three seconds. Mm -hmm. Plus you're sober, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a powerful thing. That's a, yep. that's a good space to be in. And you know, over the course of the last, uh, about five years. I typically always stay at an occupation for two years only. And I'll stay for two years, come in, do what I say I'm going to do, and leave victorious, right? And I get to, I get to walk away from it. And I, I used to like that validation of like, no, where are you going? Please stay. Like, oh, my God, yeah. where are you? You know what I mean? And I liked it because 
for me, it was just a matter of ego, feeding the ego, right? Mm-hmm. And I have a big ego, you know what I mean? I'm just, I'm, I'm built the way I am. But in the past five years, I've been surrounded by people that have allowed me access to vulnerability and an understanding that the reason why I stayed to uh, places only two years was because I was afraid to get hurt. I didn't want to establish relationships with coworkers mm-hmm. or people because the likelihood of me being hurt quantifies, right? And so Avoidant, the people right. that I work with, fortunately, again, they challenged me. They're all uh, clinically trained. They're licensed. Mm-hmm. And so they challenged me to get to this point to where at that two-year mark, I was like, you know what? I've done what I came here to do. I'm going to be leaving. And they're like, but why? And then I had to be, I was forced to answer. And, right. and then I got to the truth. And so now I've been at SRC for a little over five years, I believe. And typically that's not that's not what I do. And right. so I've been lucky to lucky to be surrounded by people that consistently challenge me. And because of that, I've established relationships. I've had we've had a really great run as an organization. We're blowing it or bursting at the seams right now, yeah. which is a good business. But at the same time, the level of integrity and authenticity to the people is still fully intact. Sure. I know everybody by first name. I go in and do groups. I meet people individually. I meet with the staff. You know, I know. And it, it, you have to do it on per. You have to be intentional about it. You know what I mean? It, yeah. you, you don't get that by just kind of sitting back waiting for it to happen. So I love that we have the culture that we do because it, it prompts it. You know what I mean? Right. And I never work a day in my life unless I'm looking at contracts or policies, procedures. But as far as working with people, I never work, work a day. I, I'm, I literally stay at work until eight or nine at night most of the time. And I'm just hanging out with the clients. Uh, last night, w- they were watching the Suns game, and I kind of caught a little piece of their uh, tail end of their group. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just there because I love being there. And, yeah, and it fills you up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because yeah. mm-hmm. it's all people that want to help themselves. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, we got, we're going to shut down here in a second. But one last thing. When, like, when... I don't know. Everybody has, you know, it's the, one of the funny things is I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this, but I'll just blab like I always do. The, the thing is that, right, like everybody has an issue. And when mm-hmm. you say, hey, you know, I have, you know, PTSD or I was molested or I was this or I was that, then it, it opens up the people around you and like, holy shit, you know, I have a friend or I did that or I had that same experience or this or that. When, when is it time for somebody to make a phone call and, and put a loved one or the, even themselves in a recovery facility like how do you know when that time is when you have to ask yourself that question really okay <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you have that thought and you're like maybe i should call somebody in that moment you're acknowledging something isn't right the behavior in relation to the way that i've raised my son or my daughter who i know him to be doesn't coincide with what he's doing right and when you start to watch it and you start to you're you're being prompted to a degree to like Something's not right. And especially women, mothers, they're very in tune with their uh, instincts, right? And they always know. Mothers always know when something's going wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And I always encourage them, trust that because you're probably not wrong. And men, we... we Your we, intuition's powerful. Yeah, we, we're, we're uh, especially women. And men, you have to have clarity to be able to get there. And a lot of, like with my mother, she, wasn't, she didn't drink or anything. So I think her level of... Um, insight was fully intact so she could always know like all i had to do is walk in the room and she's like what's going on (laughs) yeah how did you know right yeah but you know with men my father was an alcoholic so i could come in this with the same affect and he wouldn't even know because he doesn't have the level of clarity or like um to be vigilant enough to recognize it right and so i think that for the most part and just to go back to that question 
we do get a majority of the calls from the mother, from the grandmother, from the auntie. But the, on the male side of it, usually they're going through their own thing and it kind of prompts like, well, if you're going to stop drinking, then I have to too. So I don't want to make that call. Let's let you do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And right. so, but usually that's what I encourage you. If you have to question it, you should probably just pick up the phone and call. Hmm. Interesting. Lee, thanks, man. It's been my pleasure. That's Thank you for stuff. having me. We'll have to have you back because cool. we could Look probably talk for hours and we hours. We could. Right? Yeah. We'll shut so. it down. <laughs> That's good stuff. Thank All you, right. Lee. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for watching. Scott Framiller and Lee Yeva on The Knot. Thank you. <laughs>